0: Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was married for 30 years in that relationship for 32. And we didn't find out until our 29th year of marriage that we were a neurodiverse couple. And we have an amazing 26 year old daughter who's doing fantastic and thriving. And today I have a wonderful guest who is also an AANE certified therapist. And I'd like to, I'm not even going to try to say your last name. I'd like to welcome Rahima and you can tell everybody your last name.
1: Perfect. Hi, Mona. Nice to speak with you. And hello to all the listeners. My name is Rahima Andalibian. Um, It's an Iranian name. So, you know, we've got all the alphabets in there. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Well, it's wonderful to talk to you again. And I always start the podcast by asking my guests to share a little bit about how they got started working with neurodiverse couples. So if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that journey, that would be great. Absolutely. Um, I started out
1: in, uh, I was licensed in New York and got my degree um, in California, moved to New York and got licensed there and started to practice there. Um, a short version of how I got connected to spectrum services, which is my, my, my practice in New York is that I, you know, I was trauma, trauma, a trauma survivor, but also a trauma specialist and really loved doing a lot of family work. Lots of couples work, lots of work with young people, young, you know, children and adolescents, but in the context of family and systemic change with the family. And I met um, a couple in New York, uh, who had uh, just appeared to be just a wonderful, wonderful couple, lots of very, very unique sort of differences. And so I was kind of curious about them and got to know uh, the partner. And she, she told me that part of their the thriving relationship was due to the work that they'd done with a clinician out in Midtown. And so I connected to that clinician as I was sort of building my practice in New York and having decided to move there, um, and met a woman named Linda Geller, who was uh, at the time running Spectrum Services. And once she, and I had written a book about my life and my m- memoir of the story of my family and how trauma impacts uh, uh, the individual and the couplehood and the siblings and the many years it takes to sort of piece those things together and and whatnot. And so she'd read my book and really fell in love with the story and got to know me and we really had an affinity for one another. And she mentioned to me that she was primarily working with neurodiverse um individuals and she didn't have anyone to really refer them to for family work uh, for a lot of the trauma work and also for couples work. And so that's really that was the my diving in. So it was sort of accidental in my life. Now, of course, in hindsight, I look back and I see how those dots were all meant to connect and why Linda and I really, really bonded and connected, which we'll probably get to in a a little bit later. and uh, so anyway, I ended up working with lots of the families. She was referring to me for family therapy and either one or two or multiple members were neurodivergent, um, either diagnosed or undiagnosed. She emphasized and worked on uh, diagnosing uh, adults that had been undiagnosed most of their life. And then we had sort of a, a group practice where we you know, collaborated and referred to one another. So that was really my, my dive into neurodivergence and uh, really started to become a student of it um, and evolved sort of from there.
0: That is such a wonderful story. And you know, everybody has such a different story. And every time I hear about new folks that are doing amazing work with neurodivergent couples or neurodiverse couples or neurodivergent individuals or families, I'm just so thankful that there's so many more resources than what I found in 2017 when I learned that I was in a neurodiverse relationship. So thank you so much for sharing that story. And I'd really love to know what made you decide to go and get the AANE certification for working with neurodiverse couples?
1: Yeah. So as a continuation to the the thread um, of me working in New York, um, I ended up personally, I ended up in a relationship with someone, um, did some long distance dating, then went back and forth. Anyway, long story short, we ended up uh, together and um, I had a child. And uh, soon after, it was really, really clear that the the, the issues that we had were really difficult to manage um, to say the least. And so anyway, it made a very, very difficult, one of the most difficult decisions of my life, which was to leave the relationship mm-hmm. and if I did that um, still a little unclear as to, you know, what was sort of causing all the, all the difficulties. I had lots of ideas, lots of theories. We had done lots of, lots of therapeutic work. We'd been to many uh, couples therapists. Um, so it really was the end of the road for, for myself. And, as I left and came to California where my family's at, you know, COVID happened. And so I was with a, you know, a, an infant six month old um, in the middle of COVID close to my family, gratefully and began to really do a, a lot more, you know, work on, on me and able to really reground myself postpartum and get rooted again. And it became the layers kind of lifted and the further I was from the relationship as difficult and as, as filled with grief as I was Mm -hmm. before those layers sort of lifted the clouds kind of moved i started to have this sort of this realization that hey wait a minute i think i think i was missing something really Mm -hmm. important and that was really i had not seen some of those threads until after we had had the baby i had Mm -hmm. had explanations of like neurodivergent issues happening but i didn't really get it because which we'll probably get to a little bit um further down also which was a, a lot of I think cultural differences, race issues, um, and trauma really had given me the understanding of, oh, I think this is what's going on. So all the treatments that I had effectively sort of embraced and gotten us into were all trauma-based couples, neurotypical couples work-based. And it was, in hindsight, I can see how it was extremely flooding and extremely inappropriate for um, our dynamic. Mm. I think, so anyway. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, go ahead.
0: That that story <laughs> is is going to resonate with a lot of people. So yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: Oh no 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 problem. Um, so I think what uh, you know, uh, Grace uh, hill and I had been friends through Spectrum because she was doing the couples workshop wor- uh, work um, workshops in New York at the time. She was flying. She was coming in with a colleague and doing some work. So we had met each other and she'd been wonderful at connecting with me. And over time we had sort of kept in touch. And I always give her a lot of credit for having been such a wonderful. Um, uh, person to sort of maintain some consistent contact with me and um, and then over time as I left you know I, I connected with her and I, I can't remember exactly how we ended up reconnecting maybe it was about spectrum or she'd heard I moved I can't remember exactly but it was COVID you know and so we sort of started to talk a lot more and bond a lot more and and then all of a sudden like I had this one day where I said you know I think this is what's happening <laughs> this is my suspicion is that there is a thread here that I really didn't quite see very clearly. And so I started speaking with Grace and she introduced me to, um, she wanted to speak with me about doing a neurodiverse family therapy course, which we designed and sort of put together. I think they're, you know, they're still in the process of uh, prioritizing some other projects, but eventually that may come out. And in that flow, she started talking with me about the neurodivergent um, couples course that she had put together and said, Hey, you know, would you like to take this? And I said, absolutely. I'd love to, you know, uh, learn more and also just see what you're up to and um, collaborate with some other people. And so it was during that course that I think it, things really, really clicked in for me, um, and I became so much more clear about, you know, what I think was happening in my relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then we've, you know, and then of course the work and Spectrum has evolved, and um, and it really has made me become so much more invested in the diagnostic piece, which I think can um, offer so much, that awareness can offer so much um, compassion and uh, better connection between people, whether they're parenting together or co-parenting separately or whatnot. And so, um, yeah, that that was my, you know, connection to A&E. And now, you know, I work with the wonderful directors and we're really working on um, providing a lot more um, services to the community and all the needs that, you know, they they see lots of need from different people from all over the United States. I see lots of need through my spectrum services because now we are also national. Um, so now we've developed, you know, sort of another layer. But that's how it all that's how it all sort of um, came together.
0: Yeah, I love the synergy. It's so interesting again how things come together and doors open and you see things that you might not have seen before because new people come into your life and open up those doors or those windows. So that is so, so interesting. And I know you talked a little bit about um, diagnosing and that that's some of the work that you do. Is that what they do also through spectrum services? Is that what you were yeah. alluding to? Okay. Yeah, I mean, the the
1: just because the audience probably doesn't know that much about Spectrum Service. So SpectrumServicesNYC.com um, is the website and it was originally designed by Linda Geller. She, uh, throughout the story I was telling you, she retired and I took over Spectrum Services. Mm-hmm. And COVID really redid the entire business model. And now we have about um, 22 people that work with me that are just fantastic. Um, and one of the major emphasis, I think, that I ended up, uh, through my personal uh, journey that I was just sharing with you that, I, that became sort of much more of a focus because I was always the therapist and that was therapy was always my main focus. And I became so much more invested in um, the training pro- protocol that we put together for assisting and uh, diagnosing and supporting people that are, that have been undiagnosed most of their life or been misdiagnosed. So lots of women um, that are on the spectrum and lots of um I mean, obviously everyone, but primarily adults, and we really specialize in working with women, um, in particular also women with ADHD who have been diagnosed with anxiety or PTSD, and their ADHD has been completely missed, or we're talking about uh, women who um, have been you know, uh, neurodivergent most of their life, um, have qualified for the diagnosis of ASD, and have struggled internally for a really long time, um, thrived in a lot of areas, and then really struggled in a lot of areas. And so that's really what our specialty is. And of course, lots of our men um, that come to us as well, but primarily all adults is what we really emphasize. We do work with children too, but it's less than about 5% of my business.
0: That's wonderful. And at the end, I'll ask for your contact information so those folks that want to contact Spectrum Services for services can be able to reach out. And I'd love, I'd love to talk, Rahima, a little bit about the diagnosing process and why you think it's so important and how it can help increase, you know, the tools and strategies that folks have to increase communication and address other challenges that they might be having in their relationship. So can you talk a little bit about how you, you work that and how you use the diagnosis process to help folks in those areas?
1: Absolutely. Um, so I think mostly the, you know, the, what happens is that people are often in pain, right? When they're coming to me anyway, or they're coming through the website and they're you know, reaching out to us or coming to any therapist, they have pain points. They're struggling, they're anxious, they're having difficulty in relationship, They're you know, or having difficulty at work or a combination of these things. Um, we do maybe get about 5% to 10% of people who are just very, very curious. You know, I have a lot of friends, for example, that are friends of mine, and they become curious about that process because they're related to me or close in close relation to me and are interested about the work. And then they're like, oh, I've, I see that in myself, and I want to get to know a little bit more about that. So it's like a self-discovery journey for them. But the majority of the people that come through the therapeutic door, whether it's mine or anyone else's practice or coaching work, they're coming because they're hurting, and so I think it becomes so critical that we understand where the pain is coming from. So I kind of use this metaphor a lot with my clients and a lot of my staff around sort of the medical, you know, door. You know, if you're going in because your your abdomen hurts, and you go in and you're just like talking about your abdomen hurting. You don't want your physician to say oh i think it's ibs or i think it's just stress or i think it's acid reflex you want them to you know run some tests and ask some questions and get a full history figure out whether you're in under a lot of duress what's been happening with your diet with your sleep what's been happening you know outside of like what's your blood pressure what's your heart condition do you know what what is going on physiologically with you that's con- contributing what are the contributing factors to this sure. pain right you want to identify that first I, I think that diagnostic stuff in psychology becomes really hard, right? You know, mental health has been stigmatized for for a long time. We're, we've definitely moved that ball forward. And I'm so grateful to see that. I mean, we get, uh, you know, so many people interested in looking at uh, what's going on with them. It's quite extraordinary to see the shift and even in the last five years of me doing this. So that's pretty extraordinary.
0: It is. And we've
1: yes, got, it uh, is. Yeah, And we've got a ways to go, but it's becoming more like commonplace conversation. At least we are, you know, we're also seeing to the good and the bad of it, you know, we're seeing shows talking about neurodivergence. We're talking, you know, so anyway, the the we as clinicians are evolving, the field is evolving and our community is evolving and people are evolving. And so um I think that it becomes so so clear. It became so clear to me that not having an understanding of what was going on leads to um, assumptions yes. I am guilty of that right and so and it was really one of the the biggest heartbreak of my life outside of my childhood traumas and sort of my you know the loss of my family has been and was the having this beautiful baby with the person I thought I was going to raise this baby with and then losing that relationship deciding mm-hmm. to leave the relationship and I think that um the lack of awareness and I'm a shrink and I do this and <laughs> yeah for as long as I was right what blinded me were I mean lots of things right there are things that I contributed co-created with him and there's things that the you know um, he could contributed. but you know the the trauma lens which is really the lens I operated within really blinded me to some of those dynamics my own um, you know um, undiagnosed but you know uh, what do you call it sprinkle of neurodivergence and the ADHD piece sort of Probably blinded me to some of that, and then race and culture had a lot to do with some of that difficulty. Um, Identifying, hey, this is what's going on. What I thought Perfect. was like the neurodivergent Asperger's theme um, turned out to be a real, in my view, anyway. It's, it's a, it's a that kind of parenting, executive function, uh, reciprocity deficit can be a really big defi- uh, um, disability, mm-hmm. it's a really significant component. And so, why is it important to diagnose? It's important to understand we were speaking two different languages. It's important to understand when you're in a neurotypical office, you know, neurotypical doctor's office, um, psychologist's office, and they're asking, um, you know, and intervening in a neurotypical way that they actually can make things worse, a lot worse. Sometimes they can bandaid the situation. And so things kind of get kicked down the road a little bit and things kind of get okay, but then they're not okay. They get okay, they're not okay. But that dance, especially for a lot of neurodivergent couples who don't know, that one or both of them are on the spectrum becomes really, really exhausting over time. And some can manage sort of, you know, they're under the radar and can be married for a really, really long time, happily or unhappily at times or whatnot. They can go through the phases of uh, relationship. And then some become, you know, it becomes very, very conflictual, becomes very, very difficult, very painful for people. So I think understanding you know, the diagnostic piece is so critical, because you need to know what are we dealing with here? What language do you speak? What language do I speak? And then do we need sort of a translator here? Do we need like, you know, same thing you would do when you travel to a different country, right? You get their Mm -hmm. currency, you figure out, you know, what their rules are, you figure out what is it 411 you call for information? Or is it 311? You know, what do you do in case of emergency? What kind of visas do you need? Like you do all of this stuff in preparation for a visit somewhere else. And I was actually listening to your other podcast that you had with the, with the British woman who was wonderful. Yeah,
0: with Margie, yeah. Yeah,
1: and she was talking about the bridge between, like, islands as you're connecting with people. You need right. to understand who am I connecting with here, what's going on, and who are they connecting with, so that you can um, have a better sense of, you know, is this my, uh, is my reaction to this a trauma piece so that I need to regulate myself more effectively? Am I, you know, um, is my, you know, what part of this trigger is a sensory issue, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Many couples have I had who've had all kinds of issues around executive function, like their biggest fights are over executive function stuff, especially when they have children that just gets, you know, it just explodes in their face. Absolutely. So you've got an ADHD partner who doesn't want to go to the grocery store or go to Costco because they're completely overwhelmed with the visual stimulation and the sound. Um, they're avoiding that task. And you got a, a different executive function issue with, with an ASD partner um, who, you know, is forgetful or, you know, goes to the store, buys one thing, comes back, and is missing five of the items on there. And this becomes a huge conf- conflict for um, these folks. Multiply that by 10 events, 10, 20 events in the course of a day. It's exhausting. And they're only yeah. deprived and exhausted. So I think that's, I don't know if I answered you completely, but feel free you to. Did. Yeah, okay. You did,
0: you did. And and I, I have to um, agree that whether folks go for a formal diagnosis, or they decide, yes, I'm on the spectrum. And I want to learn more about it. I mean, because I know it's very, very expensive for folks to get diagnosed. So some have decided, you know, they don't want to do that, that I've talked to. But I think the main issue is that if there is neurodiversity in your relationship, and it's not acknowledged, by both partners, it becomes extremely difficult. And there can be so much, and I always say unintentional hurt, pain and trauma. So yeah, yeah, you know, um, I wish that the diagnosis process was a a little bit uh, easier or a lot less expensive. But maybe that will happen down the line as things become more the norm. You know, people understand neurodiversity is something that is part of our world, and it's not uncommon. So let's talk a little bit about. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Address that a little bit. Yeah,
1: please. Okay. So, because it's such a um, it's such an important aspect of what you said, and and I think that it's really really true that it is very very challenging for a lot of people, and I've sort of made it my mission in the last two years. To make a dent into that, so um, I'm going to explain a couple of things that it might be helpful for the for the uh, for the audience. Awesome. Uh, one that most uh, insurance companies, if you have an out-of-network insurance, you know, if you have a PPO, not an HMO, unfortunately, but if you have a PPO. By the way, if you have HMOs, there's lots of people that do um, diagnostic stuff, like uh, nurse practitioners that also specialize in psychiatry, who do work and primarily do it on Zoom, actually. Um, always in their own state because they, they have more limitations as far as that goes. But they work with people in their state and they run a variety of screeners that they can do online. And their fees, I've looked into two of them, and their fees are not, you know, astronomical—one fifty to, you know, uh, one seventy-five. But with a three to four hours of work, where you can get a diagnostic piece, which is significantly less than getting, a, let's say, you know, people that were going in to do a full neuropsych battery or something, which is maybe. Yeah thousand. So there's lots of resources, even for those on HMO plans. Um, but specifically for people that have PPOs, there's out of network coverages, and I won't get into the, the depth of the details of that. But on, my, on the homepage of my website, they can go to the bottom and they can see all the steps. But basically, most people, um, depending on the state in New York, we have a lot better reimbursement rate that um, our clients get. But also, you know, I primarily deal with New York, DC and California. Um, but people can figure this out for themselves sort of by calling the insurance company. Most of them have very, very good um, uh, reimbursement rate for psychological evaluation. Mm-hmm. Most don't know that. And mm-hmm. so they don't utilize that service. They just think that they don't, they're don't, they not covered for therapy. So that's one thing I would say that first you got to see what you have available and then see if you can utilize that. So they go, they pay, maybe put it on a credit card or pay it outright and then get a super bill which then they submit to their insurance company, and then they meet their deductible and get some reimbursement back. So we've had a very, very good—I uh, think about—we get anywhere between 35 to 75 uh, percent of our uh, our clients report between 35 to 75 percent of the fees that they pay gets reimbursed through their insurance companies.
0: That's wonderful.
1: Yeah. So that's one main thing that I always try to make sure that our clients, you know look at what benefits do I have and how can I use it to my um, to my benefit. The other is, um, there are lots of places now. Um, there are probably, I think, one one website that I'm aware of and our website will have this in the next two months, probably about a month, but I'm going to say two just in case of delays. But we're going to have about eight screeners available for people to use for free so that they can screen themselves online because there is a population of people I just don't end up serving. And I have been really frustrated with the fact that we just, we can't meet the needs of those people. And so I think what would be helpful is to have a variety of screeners. We have OCD, ADHD, um, ASD. We're going to put on some, some trauma screeners as well so that people can just get a general idea if they're moving in the right direction and should they or should they not sort of follow through with a diagnostic piece. The other thing about diagnosis I wanna clarify is that when we say diagnosis, it does not have to be a neurological neuropsychological battery. Right. That takes many, many hours and takes many, many months. Right. So I have currently with my with my staff. We just designed a one hour. Um, she was just telling me about this one hour protocol that she runs for women that are pretty sure, or for people, but in, specifically we're talking about women that pretty are pretty self-diagnosed. They're pretty sure they have ADHD, but they haven't been diagnosed. Or, you know, on a scale of zero to ten, one is like you know one or two or three is like you've had some symptomology, but you're not really fitting the criteria of diagnosis. About five out of ten, or right in the middle, is when you're. Having symptomology in enough areas of your life that you would, let's say, quote unquote, be diagnosed, where it becomes important, you know, a, a, a big factor in your life. Sure. So lots of us have those sprinkles, but doesn't necessarily mean that we were diagnosed or diagnosable. So, these, uh, this kind of one hour protocol can help you identify what subgroup of ADHD do you struggle with, the inattentive, the hyperactive, the combined, and then what are those skills and resources? And there are a ton of free resources available now. Um, on Instagram, and there's lots of people that are vocal about offering lots of different things that actually can help people, um, self-help, you know, a lot of people. So that's really beautiful and available, and we can guide them to those resources. And the majority of the testing that we do, and I know that there are lots of other clinicians, um, in particular in New York, that do the, the psych evals that really focus on a diagnostic evaluation. They're not going to, they're going to do screeners with you, they're going to do something, we're not doing an IQ test, we're not doing a achievement test. We're not looking at your overall cognitive capacity um, or processing, unless that's like indicated and it's important, but most of our clientele don't really need that in order to move forward. They need to know, okay, I want to, I want to figure out what's going on, what some of, how some of my struggles can be explained. um, And then what's, how do I build some skill? How do I make this, these parts, my superpower? And then how do I adapt to the parts that I know I'm going to struggle with, or the people in relationship with me are going to struggle with? And so that becomes the focus But we pride ourselves on going anywhere from like four to eight hours, which is a very short amount of time in general for an overall diagnostic piece. So just letting you, your listeners know that there are lots of people in the field who have heard their cry of this is exhausting. This is too much. This is too expensive. And we are doing everything we can to give what we believe is necessary so that we could be accurate in our in our um, interpretations and our and our diagnoses but also save you some of that extra time and, and investment that you may not need given
0: what your you know goals are for coming in. I think that is fantastic. And I know I went on the AANE website today and I know they've had a list of diet diagnosticians on there, but they it looks like they've made it even more user-friendly and the list of therapists and coaches that Mm -hmm. have gone through their certification. So this is wonderful to know because I can't tell you how many people, and I'm sure you get it too, how many people have contacted me and said, you know, do you know where I can get a diagnosis? I've been told that there's a 12-month waiting list or whatever. So I know there's not going to be uh, folks available in every state and in every country. Country, but the fact that you're doing this and that you're going to have all these different assessment tools that are going to be available, other screener tools, I think it's fantastic. We're moving in the right direction, Rahima. We're moving in the right direction. So, so let's talk a little bit about the trauma piece and how trauma and race and culture can all possibly cover up what might be neurodiversity because you mentioned that a little bit. And I think it's an issue that has come up before in various conversations I've had with folks, but we've never really talked about it on the podcast.
1: Yeah. Um, As you were asking me that, you know, my brain kind of thinks in fireworks because of my, uh, in part it can be my superpower, but in part, it can be frustrating to listen to. So I hope I'm not frustrating anybody that's listening and you too. One thing I wanted to sort of address before we move on to the the other trauma and race component, which is a great conversation really to have and it's so meaningful. Um, and hopefully, you know, I'll either add some kernels of goodness to it or at least start that conversation for all of us um, and push it in, in a direction. Um, is that the the piece about um, the piece about diagnosis and understanding what's going on is for me one one of the and I want to add this personal piece to it because I think that the biggest struggle I've always had has been accepting that sort of the not knowing has always been one of my biggest difficulty once i know what's going on and i have a big, bigger understanding of it then i'm like okay now i have these choices so to me knowledge like the you know what, what i'm sure everyone's heard you know knowledge power if i'm aware of what's happening it gives me more resources to cope It mm-hmm. then now opens up my options i can either accept I can, you know, grieve and move on. I can fight for change. I can, like, I have all sorts of choices. And depending on where we all are, where we all are in our lives, and in the context of those relationships, we decide to do one or the other or combination. And then over time, you know, we co-create a different dynamic with that person or within ourselves. So I think that's that's the biggest thing about I think the diagnostic piece because I think people hear diagnosis and they think, oh, it's you know, it's pathology oriented, they're going to look at what's wrong with me. And I just want to really, really emphasize, this is something that I've really worked on with my team of, I've got about seven evaluators now, um, that we are very, very strength-based. And if you go to anyone that's doing a diagnostic piece, and you feel like all their questions um, are negative, and you're starting to feel, you know, shame within yourself, or you're starting to feel like all the problematic areas are, are the only areas that are highlighted, then then communicate that to that person. Because Remember, you are co-creating this with the person who's evaluating you. The field is growing and the evaluators are evolving. We as clinicians are evolving. Uh, The neuroscience research is evolving. Genetic research, analysis and whatnot is evolving. Like we're all in this together. So feel free to communicate those things to the person that's with you. And if it's not the right fit, then move along and find the right fit. There are lots of us doing that work and we can guide you to the right place um, for you. So I just wanted to kind of put that blurb in. Okay.
0: I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And I I think that, yes, things have changed a lot. And I think in the past, maybe 10 years ago, there was a lot of pathologizing. It was all about the negative. And I think we are definitely seeing shifts. And I love that the younger folks, you know, on Instagram and TikTok and all over social media are really focusing on, you know, their superpowers, their strengths, and they want the world to know. And I love that. I love that because we all have strengths and we all have challenges, no matter how our brain is wired. So thank you for adding that. Yeah, yeah thank you. absolutely. Um, okay, so on to trauma
1: and um, race. Um, remind me your question because I yeah, yeah I will no, that's- get into a section you may not want to hear about.
0: <laughs> that's okay. So yeah, I know I, I hear a lot of folks talking about trauma and and some even saying, you know, at first I wasn't sure if mm-hmm. my partner was was autistic, because Mm -hmm. there's so much trauma in their past. And then I also hear from folks who are from different cultures. And they're like, in the beginning, I thought the difference was because we're from two different cultures. So I'd be really excited to hear you talk about this, because I know it's one of your areas of expertise, kind of how trauma, race, and even culture can cover up neurodiversity or make you think that it's not neurodiversity.
1: Right. Um, So when you're dealing with, uh, I mean, really, to, in, my, um, in my world and in the way I understand the world, you know, almost all of us have some level of trauma or the other. Um, yeah. Some of us have a combination. So we call that complex trauma. So if we have a combination of an attachment trauma, um, so that's to a caretaker who maybe was neglectful or was unattuned or was, um, you know, grieving a loss of another child or a different event that happened in their life. Um, and were therefore not that present, so not not even a neurodivergent parent who was a, unattuned because of their difficulty, but rather some event happening in life, or a combination of those things. So you have attachment stuff, you have developmental traumas that can happen at different developmental stages, and then you have event traumas. So, you know, floods, losing your house, uh, car accidents, um, you know, all the big T traumas. You know, uh, revolutions, moving from country to country, you know, you name it. So most people when you talk about traumatic traumatic experiences when one per- when a person is left feeling helpless and powerless
0: mm-hmm.
1: there's what their nervous system does to the, in response to that flee, freeze you know response so most people can identify a moment in their life where they've had some level of you know traumatic experience and have had and have noticed something within their nervous system now some people can have traumatic experiences and move forward without a reaction that consistently what we call sort of symptoms. Those symptoms don't last, like you know, take soldiers that come back from war who have been in the same platoon, who were part of the same, let's say this one event where a friend of theirs was killed, um, bomb went off, friend was killed. um, And another person who's symptomatic for over many, many years and suicidal and obviously as you know, I'm sure a lot of people know, um, the loss of life to suicide after the Iraq war, you know, compared to the soldiers that we lost in Iraq war. I mean, it's horrific to, so there are many that can't sort of that, 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 that traumatized experience stays within their body and that, um, body reactions and responses to fight fully freeze continue and the symptoms continue. And then there's some who, um, cope differently. And we have some, some theories about, You know um, why that is and why some people can cope with those things and move forward without having symptoms and some some don't the majority of the time the at least the consensus from you know again i'm evolving too as a clinician so i don't know every single research article that's been written in the last five years but the consensus is that people who have um had uh childhoods especially under the age of you know five and eight where they had uh consistent attuned parenting um consistent connection without traumatized experiences tend to weather and have more resilience into weathering those storms as they get older. Okay. Mm -hmm. How does this sort of cap into sort of neurodivergence? So if you think about um, someone whose nervous system has sensitivities, Mm -hmm. OCD, you've got OCD, ADHD, you know, ASD, Tourette's, uh, you know, one of the sort of top neurodivergences, then um, you've got uh, sensitivity potentially to sounds. You've got uh, basically the five senses. So if you if you look at uh, being, if you put yourself in a position of being someone who's neurodivergent running around in the world, which is a pretty neurotypically designed world, mm-hmm. you can see how their nervous system would feel on edge or traumatized, just even if they don't have any additional traumatized stuff. Now, the other component is that Lots of kids that are neurodivergent tend to pull different things, different parenting from their parents. So they could have a sibling who's not neurodivergent and that sibling can have a wonderful relationship with the parent, whereas the neurodivergent child feels that they had a horrific relationship with their parent or were traumatized by a particular reaction or their parent. Um, Sometimes neurodivergent folks have a really big struggle with um, an event happens and it continuously, repetitively um, continues to reoccur in their nervous system. So something that someone else would, you know, be able to let go and move forward from and kind of uh, put some healing to, much more difficult for, for someone that may be on the spectrum. And also, if you're on the spectrum without having the resources and the tools to be able to do that, it makes it even harder. So sure. add cultural and race stuff to that, right? So add being, let's say, an African-American um, male or female in, this, in America, for example, and imagine the experience of that person, um, or an immigrant, uh, any person of color really who's immigrated or whatnot, where this was not their host home or whatnot, and imagine their experience in having to present aside themselves to the, to the world, as opposed to, to their own internal community and family. So mm-hmm. that thing becomes, as a way to survive, as a way to, you know, uh, live. And so, if you add masking to that component, this is how race and neurodivergence becomes kind of complex. And that we have we have folks that find, um, you know, they they explain a lot of the behavior and what's going on with the client. Even we've had case conferences where we're talking about a client who's coming in, who's a person of color, and we're looking at all their. Challenges can be explained by you know the traumatic responses, but then when you look back and you do some screeners and you do other people's screeners of them and review um, diagnostically what's going on with them from other people's perspectives, and you go back and gather some of the history, you know you've got a combination of other things happening. You've had you know um, difficulty with reading. You had some cognitive uh, sequencing issues. You've had uh, reciprocity issues. You've had the ability to keep people in mind issues, and so. Here's what's really important to me. And I and this is the beginning of a conversation. We definitely haven't sort of sealed the, like, this is the standard practice yet, you know? Mm-hmm. But um, in fact, I think the race and neurodivergence conversation is, is quite, you know, fresh. So mm-hmm. we've got a long way to evolve here. Um, the, uh, um, I just lost my thread. Give me one second. It'll come back to me because it was important. Um, let's see.
0: We were talking about, We were talking, yeah, Yeah. we were talking about how uh, a person of color might, um, you know, have trauma or any, anybody from a different culture might have trauma. And then that, yeah. um, trauma yeah. is maybe the only thing that folks are looking at, but then as they do more screeners and yeah. they talk to people from their childhood or people that are in their life, they may notice that there are things related to neurodiversity and specifically maybe autism or ADHD. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for bringing me back.
1: Um, yeah. So the, the 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 decipher the deciphering factor for me that's very very important because I have you know I've got conversations with with my staff about this who say you know a lot of attachment stuff there's a lot of attachment trauma here that explains this difficulty and so is ASD really you know is it really a diagnosis that this person fits now um, for you know a variety of reasons we do lots of varieties of screeners so that we can have some uh, validated. Um, results to kind of assist us in our perception of the person and what we we want to identify as their you know core explanations for what's happening with them. The one thing that I always emphasize with with them is that the mildest version, and I heard this from my mentor, um, and I and I love it, and I remember, remind myself of this: the mildest version, the mildest ASD or um, no divergence, can become not always, but can be a significant difficulty mm-hmm. and I would say slash disability. You can see this with, I mean, I do a lot of work with couples, blended couples, uh, blended families, couples that are separating and mediation, divorce, you name it. Um, and you see this as this becomes really, really noticeable. It becomes so clear that all the traumatic stuff, all the other difficulty that this person's had um contribute absolutely and sometimes the symptoms are the same you can explain it by neurodivergence you can explain it with trauma because they feed one another they are you know they're the person's coping um as best as they can with the with the difficulties that they've had but i think if we miss this is the thing like if we miss trauma we you know that person's gonna have anxiety or some other way they're gonna get that support or they're gonna being seen for that but if we miss the neurodivergence that is a much harder piece to make sure that we don't miss because that can be transformative. That information can be transformative in, in developing uh, the skill sets um, that that individual needs in order to be able to move forward and then also getting the kind of coaching and support they need. Let's say it's for executive function issues. Let's say it's for reciprocity issues. Let's say it's in, in relation to their child issues. Um, that becomes a huge, huge, like that little kernel of, Uh, information can have um, there's a magnitude of uh, relief and also um, change so typically most of our most of our folks will have a combination just because we're complex human beings and if we've had traumatizing experiences we we probably are you know we probably will get diagnosed with trauma Um, if you have ADHD for example and um, you've you know, you're very high functioning, you've worked really hard, you're um, a high performer, lots of CEOs and leaders of companies are ADHD. I've, uh, you know, I've never worked for anyone, really, except I'm 47. I last person I worked for was when I got my doctors at 24. I think it was 26. And I've been on my own since 26. You pulled me in a job a nine to five job, and I would be probably, you know, homicidal. So, (laughs) you know, my, my, my brain and the way that I operate and the way that I need to create and grow and have diversity of constant learning and expansion um, and leading and developing and sequencing and connecting pieces and connecting people, that doesn't fit the neurotypical you know, psychology world of what, you know, what was offered. And so I created sort of my own path. Um, but here's the pieces about sort of not being diagnosed and I'll share my own experience. Cause I think it's always more touching to people and they can kind of see themselves more in it. Plus I also like to do that because it de-shames the experience. Mm-hmm. So that they know that I'm not only the president of the company, I'm also a client. Like we all in this together. We all have, we're all doing this, you know, like right. um, when I was young, I started having a lot of working memory issues. I was a 2020 student in Iran. You you calculated grades A, basically was a 20, 20, you know, 19, 18, 17, etc. So I was a 2020 student, lots of trauma happened. Um, I mean, literally big enough traumas that I've written a book about it, that kind of trauma in my life, which is hopefully, you know, it's not rare, but it's not the majority of people's pop- experience, thankfully. Um, and right around that same time, When my mom and my younger brother, who was my closest person, were separated from me, I was in Iran, they were in London, there was a war, we just lost everything. Um, I started having a really hard time memorizing the multiplication table because I was in third grade and we were doing multiplication table. Mm. And that was the first time I ever cheated in school. Mm. And I cheated because I was such a good student. I was such a hard worker um, and I loved learning. And not for the life of me, I remember walking around. There was snow in our yard. I was walking around in the snow with my boots and jacket, and I was constantly—I had the little, you know, multiplication table thing in my hand, and I was remembering, and then I would forget the numbers. Remembering, forget the numbers, or reverse numbers. Mm. Well, I have this calculator. Mm. I also have um, dyslexia. I didn't know that then. So imagine a child's experience. So here's the thing about trauma and merging into neurodivergence. I thought for many decades that the difficulty I was having in school at the time. And then, of course, we moved to London and we different language, you know, all of that stuff. I thought all of that was explained by the immigration, by the loss, by the trauma. I couldn't focus. I couldn't concentrate. Um, so you go back and you look at, you, you peel away some of the traumatic stuff because I've obviously done a lot of trauma work. And then you look at the threads, the, the, the you know, uh, brain processing threads. And you're like, oh my goodness, look at that. That's the, that's the importance, I think. So why would it be important for me to know that about myself, let's say, or if I have a daughter, well, I don't daughter. if my daughter's going through something like that, is that I grew up and probably for the
0: for the following 20 years, I thought I was stupid. Mm, that's so, so sad. And you're not alone, Rahima. No. You're I, not alone. There's so many folks that have struggled and never had a diagnosis and thought they were stupid, thought they were dumb. And there's so much shame in their lives. And it just makes me want to cry. Yeah. And yeah, but so go ahead. I, I okay. yeah, I'm so sorry yeah. that you went through that. But I, yeah. There's, yeah and, and really, what
1: you were saying about makes you want to cry. I mean, majority of my, um, my staff tell me that when they give their final reports to their clients and they have their final sessions, there's such, such tears, you know, mm-hmm. such Tears. there's so much holding of so many experiences because remember most of my clientele and my subspecialty really is adults who have had decades of experience, experiencing themselves in one way, and then now finding explanation. So that's why it's really become yeah. ours to, to spread this information to get as many people as possible to see it and say, you know we feel the pain we want to see what's going on here and then how do we support it and how do we build the bridge to within ourselves and also to others in our lives so um let me circle back to the trauma and the the neurodivergence piece i think because when you are dealing with uh, let's say a client if you've got a client or if you've got a person or yourself are traumatized or had trauma in your background and are potentially neurodivergent or you're dealing with someone in relationship to you who is that way and you go to therapy or you get a coach or you're working on it yourself through self-help stuff, you're going to apply neurotypical interventions to trauma. Yeah. Neurotypical event interventions to trauma can actually be extremely flooding and damaging to a neurodivergent person. Yep. That's why it's so important to understand that distinction. So if we have, you know, in particular, I've made it my mission to hire two or three people of color as one of our evaluators. Because we want to add that that language. I mean, I'm I'm an immigrant. I'm an Iranian immigrant, uh, person of color. But my experience is different than a black person in America. Right. And so it's important that if we are getting folks in that in the population, and we are trying to assist more people in a diverse population who normally wouldn't even come to uh, you know these types of services, then we have to make sure we represent that, and we have to make sure that we are constantly on the cutting edge of that conversation with 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 people like you know with, with the people within the community. Who are doing that work because they have a very different I amount mean, you ask me about you know trauma and uh neurodivergence from an from an immigrant experience i have i have a bookload of stuff i could share with you you know mm-hmm. um and you ask someone who is an african-american uh, evaluator um they have a book of stuff that they want to add you ask someone who's got specialty in um, adhd and women they add another so that's part of why it's really really important to have a um, a diverse group uh, supporting, uh, the, the incredible diversity in our population. And I think, uh, the trauma piece has become much more of common language. Lots of people are now aware. I remember 10 years ago when I was starting in my trauma, uh, subspecialty, you know, the word wasn't out, you know, people weren't hearing it unless they were in the field of psychology. Now it's pretty common language. You know, we see it a lot, at least in the United States. Um, I think race and neurodivergence is one of those things I'd like to see become more more of a topic of conversation and, um, exploration Um, and then there's a couple of other things that I that I find in my own experience that contribute to some of that blindedness to seeing some of those patterns like religiosity Mm -hmm. people that are on the spectrum that I find find religion um extremely besides the you know spiritual religious reasons obviously um but that some of that rigidity really and the the kind of clear black and whiteness of certain interpretations of religion or religions can really, they can find home in that um, and implement those rules and sort of things to their their partners and their family. Um, But there's like a really significant neurodivergence piece there that really is contributing to the difficulty um, or the way that they're coming across to their children or to their partner. And I sometimes think that that, you know, you can explain it by, ah, that that person doesn't, for example, make eye contact because they're really, you know, by the way, I'm not saying every Muslim or Jewish person who practices that doesn't make eye contact right. women is no divergent. I'm not saying that just in case anyone likes right. it. <laughs> But I'm right. saying in combination, when you look at a lot of different things, um, a lot of different components, the social component, the cognitive, the sequencing, the theory of mind, the self-focus, the self-regulation, the, the emotional sensitivity that a lot of people um, struggle with. When you, when you look at the combination of those things, religiosity, race, um, gender, these things and trauma, um, these things really can mask some of the neurodivergence uh, that's going on with people. So that's why it's really important to pay attention to all these factors as you're looking at yourself or you're, you're, you're doing an evaluation.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think if you haven't written any papers or anything on this, these subjects, it'd be fantastic to have more out in the literature. Because as you were talking about religiosity, I was thinking I am Jewish Mm -hmm. and um, I'm not Hasidic, but I'm thinking about the Hasidic community where there's a lot of rules and there's a lot of black and white thinking. And that might feel really comfortable Mm -hmm. to be in a religious setting or to focus on your religious upbringing or beliefs and have clear cut rules and ways of doing things and to be able to follow that. And then when somebody in your family or somebody that you're in a relationship with cannot support that, I think that that could be really challenging for somebody who's neurodiverse who may not have, um, who may have mind blindness and may not be able to see another person's perspective, but it may be kind of, um, seen as their religious beliefs and like the neurodiversity is covered up again. These are topics we've never talked about on the podcast and I think, yeah. And I think they're going to resonate with a lot of folks who may be in a situation where they're in a relationship with somebody who's very religious and they met in church or they met in synagogue or temple or in a mosque. And that was what they had in common. And that was a special interest, but they had no idea that they were in a neurodiverse relationship. And now maybe they have children or they've moved in together, gotten married and they're seeing things that they didn't see before. I think that's really, really important. So I would, I would love to end with, there's something you shared with me. We've kind of gone over it, but you you called it feel it, see it, and help it. And that kind of just brings everything together, I think, that we've talked about. So do you mind sharing a little bit about your philosophy around those three things? Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: and by the way, about the piece around the religiosity, that's a whole, that's a wonderful, uh, you mentioned something and it reminded me of how religiosity and trauma actually can be blind. So anyway, if we have an, a little bit of time, maybe we can cover that, or next time in further conversation. So mm-hmm. let me go back to um, feel it, see it, and support it or help it. Um, understanding neurodivergence. So typically, people are feeling it. It's already happening in their relationships. It's not like we're going to discover something as clinicians or as you know mm-hmm. diagnosticians and say, oh, this is happening, and it's not there. If it's not there, it's not there, right? Mm-hmm. So. We um, assuming, you know, you're you're, obviously we're assuming you're going to someone that's reputable and is a good person and is a good clinician. Um, And there are ways to be a good consumer of these services. And I'm happy to help people figure out what that is and how to research that and whatnot. But basically feel it. So people are feeling that difficulty. They're coming in and saying these are our pain points or this is what's happening with me. This is a level of uh, concern. This is the anxiety. This is the pressure. This is the injustice I feel as a mom of a two year old, you know, of two kids with a husband who, you know, is really, really, this is stereotypical, but it tends to be very, very true. It happens often where um, they're really, really struggling with feeling like there's an injustice that I as a mom am not only working, but I'm really doing 90% of the housework and executive function and social calendar for the kids and myself and my partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is triggering the injustice in them and the sexism in the world. And so that that causes and feel fuels the conflict dance, you know, that they have and that, you know, you get more and more frustrated you get more demanding you get more um your requests and you do all these things it doesn't work and then they withdraw and withhold because now they're feeling shamed and feeling like they're not good enough and then the cycle continues and then you make up and then you do the cycle again at another point the same fight different content repetitive. Right. right so feeling it is basically it's there we want to have an understanding of what the pain points are what's the what what are the cycles um, of, um, the dance, basically the Sue Johnson, the couples therapist talks about the dance between people. So all the couples, you know, um, uh, leaders of like, think, you know, thinkers of like Richard Schwartz and, you know, um, uh, Sue Johnson and John Godman, they talk a lot about these kinds of dynamics. I add the, um, I think, you know, at least what I try to do is to add the, uh, neodivergent angle to this, because lots of the, The fight cycles are similar, and then there are lots of neurodivergent reasons for why these things kind of go offline with with our couples. So we want to make sure we get that angle of the feel it part. What what are the neurodivergent pieces here that are happening? What are the overstimulations that are happening? What are the parts where the partner is flooding? What are the parts where the ADHD partner is so hyper focused and is not able to let go to give the other person a minute to just take a breath before they go back into trying to resolve something, for example. So it's not right. just the, you know, ASD person It's a combination of right. divergence in the relationship and the neurotypical person not knowing is contributing and co-creating that dance obviously. So that's the feeling. The see yeah. it is, okay, let's look at our resilience. Let's look at our beauty within uh, the individual and the, uh, the couple. Let's look at the amount of understanding and grit it bloody takes to be doing what we do and show up as people period and then show up as neurodivergent people and then to be in relationship with other people so you know and a lot of the couples we have that's primarily the thing that i sort of emphasize is looking at how much grit they've got how much resilience they've got what are the ways in which they recover what are the ways that they're um self-soothing and regulating themselves and regulating the entire family um so those are those are the pieces that we want to really see clearly and then we want to really deal, deal with the diagnostic piece. If we've got uh, one or two members of a family or multiple members of the family that we think uh, or couplehood that we think are neurodivergent, we want to make sure we do either a brief diagnostic piece or we do a full evaluation depending on what's needed. Um, and then really allowing the couple to really grieve individually, but also partners to really grieve the fantasy, the fantasy, mm-hmm. partner, the fantasy partner, the fantasy son, the fantasy daughter, you name it. And then we lead into what support do we need now? What do we need to put in place here um, so that we can, you know, direct our ships? So everybody's in their own boat. I think of like oceans um, because we're in the ocean of life, sort of the Buddhist philosophy of mine, that all these waves will continue to come. We just get to be better captains of our ship and better surfers. So we're all in our boats. How can we direct our boats? you know, side by side in a way that, you know, we don't lose track of one another that we can maintain sort of we do this in uh, sensory motorcycle therapy, where you have a hand on your heart, and you have a hand held out to another person, or your family. So you're taking care of yourself, you're regulating yourself, you're managing your traumas, your neurodivergence, your this, your that life stresses, work, etc. And you have a hand held to someone else so that if you have both hands held to the world outside of you, to, to your children, to your Um, you know partner to your family etc there's burnout and there's resentment and all these other things that sort of kick in if you're not doing enough of that self-care in combination so it's and then also like you know you can't block yourself off and just have hands to yourself where this is where we see a lot of the you know divergent male quote-unquote kind of experiences where their partners complain sort of that they're too self-focused and they are you know they have mind blindness and they just it's all about them and they need and Really, they're doing their best to regulate the way that they can. It's an explanation, an excuse for bad behavior, by the way. Let's be very clear. Um, I hold my, my my people very, very much accountable and work with them on how to show up differently. Um, but having an understanding of the behavior helps us with compassion and understanding. So the supportive part is, okay, what skills do we need to put in place? Does this particular person need a coach that is going to help them with, you know, scripts, let's say, for their children when they're having difficulty? Do they need... Um, assistance with executive function stuff so that they have a system in place so they're not being as forgetful and then triggering their partner or their child because they appear like they don't care, but really they do and they are very sensitive and they're very loving, but it's not being communicated that way to the people in their lives. Why? What's getting in the way of that? Let's, let's figure out how to bridge that. Um, so that becomes the, the supported and then skill building part. That's usually the most proactive, um, empowering part of the experience.
0: I love it. I think that puts words to a process that is so important. And I think without all of the different pieces and understanding them, I think couples can get really lost in the anger and the resentment and not want to work through the challenges they have and come up with the skills and the strategies that will help them move forward in a in a better way understanding what they each need in the relationship so that's really really helpful and we're at the end and you've shared so much important information that I know we have not talked about on the podcast and I know you and I could probably talk for another three Mm -hmm. hours absolutely (laughs) so so I'd love if there's one last Um, word of wisdom or piece of advice that you want to share. And then if you could give the listeners your contact information, what is the best place for them to reach out to you? Great. That's a great um,
1: uh, bow sort of on our wonderful conversation. I think the one big piece of um, the one big piece I want to leave with is, you know, not, I would, I would say just knock down the shame. Mm. Just get through the damn shame. It's not going to go away. It's going to be there. You're going to question whether I should or shouldn't. Should I go to this person? Should I talk about this? Should I not? You know, if you're in the process, if you're, if you've got a whatever that process is, like if you're in a therapy process and it's not, it feels slut- stuck and you're struggling with communicating that, find a way to do that and get what you need. Or, you know, you'll move elsewhere. If you're thinking about maybe I am, maybe I'm not, maybe my partners, maybe, I, maybe they're not. Um, and you're, you know, worried about coming out, there is such incredible growth and connection out on the other side of shame. You just gotta get through that, like make that write that email to the place you want to go see or call that therapist or follow through with that conversation with your partner or whatever it is that's blocking you. And often I find shame is at the core of a lot of that. So I would say, just do it, get through it, get the support you you need. There's lots of amazing people out there setting setting the, you know continuously sort of lighting this path and the in the process. And for everybody to remember we' all we're all here to walk each other home as the Buddhists say.
0: Mm, amen we're all here to
1: walk each other home and we're here to hold each other's hands and hopefully you know have more kindness in the world um, for all of us and more understanding and compassion and celebrate our differences. Um, and my contact information. Mm-hmm. Very easy to Google. So if anybody is looking for me, they can just type in my name, Rahima Psychologist in New York and it'll pop up or psychologist California. No one. not that I know I was a psychologist with my name at the moment. <laughs> uh, our website that does have the information around the insurance piece that people can have. and soon in the next month we will have, hopefully a month, six weeks, Um, we will have the free screeners that people can anonymously fill out and get some information that can just guide their process because sometimes people do that months before they even make a phone call or years before they make a phone call so whatever your process is know that there'll be anonymous um, better sort of screeners than some that are available out there that you can kind of find and go through Um, and then of course you can have more information about OCD ADHD trauma um, and Asperger's autism on the website as well and we have a resource page where we've linked to all of my favorite other sites that I like to go to that I trust and I like and I know people behind them who are working hard to make an impact in the field and so you have all of those other sites also available Um, and we have some socials and, you know, retreats hopefully for next year that we'll put together so people can get together and just have a little bit of an ability to be together and have a community experience together in in a different part of the world and hopefully we'll see how that goes with, you know, all the... COVID stuff kind of. But anyway, we will see. But yeah, it's sorry. Um, Spectrum services.
0: NYC.com is the name of the website. Wonderful. Yeah, I and I think that you're going to get a lot of folks going to your website when the podcast comes out. And I can't thank you enough for the amazing work that you're doing through the All the new staff that you hired, all the things you're doing on your website, it's just absolutely amazing. Going to bring so many needed, desperately needed resources to people all over the United States and hopefully folks throughout the world. So thank you so much for spending this time with me on the podcast. And I really, really thank you for sharing your expertise and your words of wisdom. Thank you
1: so much for having me, Mona. Really love having you um, in the world and what you do for everyone. And let's do a shout out to Grace also who brought us together. Yes, absolutely.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Rahima. Thank you, Mona.